Why are so many dogs suffering from health issues? Actress Catherine Hegel, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dog joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she's discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. Listener, I've watched this video, and honestly, it's 20 minutes well spent. The health of my animals means everything to me. This stuff has improved the coats and energy of mine, and they love it. Normally, they are picky with food, but they really enjoy this stuff. Go to badlandsfood.com slash obscura and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D.com slash obscura. With Mother's Day around the corner, are you thinking about a truly special gift for your mom? Let me tell you about mylifeinabook.com. It's a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Pretty cool, right? Here's how it works. Every week, mylifeinabook.com will send her a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about her life or any custom questions you wish to ask. And then... She can either type her response or record her voice. And mylifeinabook.com compiles all of her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. And guess what? They can even create an audiobook using her voice recordings. It's like preserving her voice and her stories for eternity. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventure, and the challenges she overcame. The book becomes a legacy, something you and future generations can treasure forever. Your mom's given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a way to share them. Personally, I love my life in a book. I tried it with my mom, and I've heard stories I'd never heard before because, you know, they just never came up naturally in conversation. It's easy to use, and my favorite part is it's given me more of an excuse to talk to my mom more. You know, it's not always easy to come up with those on your own. Listener. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use code OBSCURA at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use code OBSCURA for 10% off today. Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat next to the fire.
Last time on Obscura, you heard part two of our story. In late January 2017, during the typically busy lunch hour in the Melbourne CBD, 27-year-old James Gargasoulis drove along the footpath of multiple blocks of Burke Street, killing six unsuspecting people and injuring many more. The aftermath of his rampage left the people of Melbourne stunned and grieving. As details of the lead-up to the carnage emerged, the public and victims' families were outraged. Police had been tailing James for 12 hours before the massacre, as he taunted them and led law enforcement on a wild goose chase around the suburbs after stabbing his brother. And he was out on pale at the time. During the trial, James was diagnosed with both antisocial and narcissistic personality disorders. But this didn't influence the jury's decision to convict him on six counts of murder. Thankfully for the victim's families, justice had been done. Partly, anyway. By this stage, the Victorian government had made announcements regarding bail reform, especially as bail laws related to violent offenders. But the families had no way of knowing how James' mental health and other mitigating factors would affect his sentence. Our story picks back up in late January 2019, two months after the verdict. The city of Melbourne was still coming to terms with the shock and grief of what had occurred in a place where people had always felt safe. Further psychiatric evaluations of James were conducted to help the court determine an appropriate sentence. As it stood, he was facing life in prison. At the same time, the victim's families had another fight on their hands. Victoria police were firmly in the glare of the media spotlight over their questionable judgment and decision-making in the 12 hours leading up to the massacre. Key decisions which failed to result in James being arrested for the earlier stabbing of his brother. The big question was, why hadn't he been arrested sooner when numerous opportunities were available? Media reports had revealed that James was a violent repeat offender who was out on bail when he plowed through the city crowns, and answers were demanded as to why, but it was uncertain whether senior police would be held accountable by the coroner for how their critical incident management protocols did or didn't protect the public when it mattered. Now, let's get on with it. Two months after James was convicted, both he and the families of the victims were back in court for a three-day pre-sentencing hearing. The prosecution argued that parole should not apply, describing the gravity of the offense as, quote, deliberate, calculated, and terrifying, with an unspeakable disregard for the sanctity of life. In his attempt to evade and disrupt his imminent capture and arrest, he drove through the most populous part of the Melbourne CBD, on the pavement, and through the mall at a time when it was likely to be very crowded with children, tourists, shoppers, and office workers. Burke Street will never be the same again. The defense submitted that James' subsequent diagnosis, reduced culpability, should be reflected in the fixing of a non-parole period, as opposed to no parole at all. They stated that their client was not driving towards specific individuals on Burke Street, arguing that James had in fact demonstrated regret and remorse, that he did not challenge any of the alleged facts. The defense also maintained, quote, On the other hand, he maintains that the offenses occurred because of a divine mission, 
and the deluded belief that he is the savior of mankind. The proceedings were the first time James would hear directly from the victim's families, who delivered emotional victim impact statements to the court, both personally and in some instances on their behalf. The parents of Japanese student Yusuke Kano expressed their deep regret in allowing their son to move to Melbourne. Speaking through an interpreter, they said, quote, We have come to perceive Melbourne as an unsafe city because we have lost our beloved son. With no apology from the accused, both my wife and I continue to live our days in deep pain and sorrow. We cannot hold back our anger towards the accused. 22-year-old Jess Moody's twin sister Emily told the court about having to tell their family that her twin had been killed in a random, senseless act. She said she heard her mother's heartbreak when she delivered the news. Quote, There's a hole where Jess is missing. I feel a crush of sadness and emptiness. I hate talking about her in the past tense. Jess's mother's statement to the court spoke of every parent's worst fears. Quote, Never in my wildest nightmare did I ever think I'd have to bury one of my precious children. Never mind prepare a victim impact statement. My beautiful, blonde, green-eyed girl is gone from us forever. Matthew C.'s wife, Melinda, told the court how her husband's face and head injuries were so severe that she could only identify him by his extremities. She pointedly directed her comments towards James, speaking about her beloved late husband. Quote, If I could, I would trade places with him. It is much harder to be the one who survived. Your words of sorry mean nothing to me. I wear the label of widow, and you are a murderer. You are a coward that sat in the safety of the car while you killed and injured innocent lives. May you suffer the consequences of your actions and live in eternal fear. Zachary Bryant's parents, Matthew and Noir, described their anguish at having to turn off their baby's life support. Quote, The news that followed about Zach dug the deepest hole in my heart. My Zach was gone. My beautiful, innocent, perfect little baby... I can still feel the weight and warmth of carrying him. A gentle and calm soul that was always so easy to please. I listened to his heartbeat and held him for the last time, trying desperately to hold on to the moment. He never had the opportunity to have a birthday party. He had a lifetime of first taken away from him and all the joys that come with it. I have lost the feeling of safety I had once felt in my favorite city. Avita Patel's brother, Mitesh, spoke of how his life had been forever changed since his sister's sudden death. Quote, I'm a broken version of myself. I still can't see a way back to that man. Losing my sister has left a gaping hole in my life. For so long, I wished I could have taken her place. The Herald Sun reported that Bavita's father referenced donating his daughter's organs following her death. Quote, she was the gel who kept our family together. She changed lives, even when she was gone. Survivors and victims' families weren't the only ones who were afforded the opportunity to express their views to the court. A letter from James's father, Christos, was read during the pre-sentencing hearing, expressing his deepest condolences and condemning his eldest son's behavior. Quote, I am very sorry for what my son has done and apologize for his actions and all the pain he has caused. 
This has hurt everyone that is involved and has brought much shame on my family. When the 55 victim impact statements had been delivered to the hushed courtroom, James himself addressed the court for the next 20 minutes. Reading a letter, he apologized to the victim's families and the survivors and spoke of the shame he claimed he felt. However, he didn't take full responsibility for his actions, saying, quote, I am a victim of government oppression. Oppression is the worst thing ever. Oppression is the root cause of terrorism and crime. Oppression is associated with government. The following month, on February 22nd, 2019 brought what the survivors and victims' families hoped would be the final chapter in the criminal proceedings as far as the convicted killer was concerned. As the judge delivered his sentencing remarks, he was unequivocal in his assessment of James's motivations. On January 20, 2017, the judge stated that it was important to send a message to the general community that committing violent offenses whilst under the influence of drugs did not entitle convicted criminals to lenient sentences. However, the judge acknowledged that James's age at the time of the offense was given favorable consideration in terms of whether to fix a non-parole period with regard to the multiple convictions for reckless endangerment and determining whether to fix a non-parole period. The judge took into account the fact that the law considered the entirety of James offending on January 20th as a single course of conduct. The comprehensive and complex dossier of expert psychiatric evidence put before the judge since James's arrest was central in determining his sentence and any non-parole period. The judge noted that while James's chronic paranoid schizophrenia was unlikely to improve in the near future, he had developed the illness following the massacre, not before. With respect to James's episode of drug-induced psychosis, the judge noted that despite the convicted killer being sleep-deprived and highly agitated on the day, he was well aware of the effects of ice and how it had the potential to influence his behavior. The judge rejected the suggestion that the killer was unaware of both his actions or the potential consequences of drug use, saying, quote, This was one of the worst examples of mass murder in Australian history. It was entirely fortuitous that you did not kill or injure many more. You were obviously well aware of their presence. You were also well aware of the likelihood that by driving through the crowds in the way that you did, you would kill, or at least seriously injure, those that you struck. You made no attempt to avoid people or to slow down. You simply plowed through them, quite deliberately. You knew full well what you were doing. You have shown yourself over a lengthy period to be a persistent lawbreaker. You were simply a low-level criminal, willing, on occasion, to act violently. Your offending was primarily the product of your addiction to ice, a matter that cannot be taken into account by way of mitigation. Bad as your criminal record is, I do not regard your past history as making it inappropriate to fix a non-parole period. Numerous statements were tendered that spoke of the immense and long-lasting psychological damage that you inflicted including upon those who were performing their duties as first responders, as well as ordinary people who were simply present and offered assistance. Their courage in the face of horrific circumstances 
should be recognized. Your cooperation by not challenging the alleged facts has spared many witnesses the ordeal of having to give evidence in a difficult and highly emotional setting. I am not confident that, given your current condition, you are capable of remorse. Your evidence was unconvincing and in cross-examination was exposed as false in certain key respects. Despite the mitigating factors, your crimes can only be described as horrendous. Your actions were both callous and cowardly. Even making allowance for your disordered state of mind, you seem to have been concerned primarily with evading police, no matter at what cost. You have shown no genuine remorse, and I do not accept that you have displayed any true empathy for those whose lives you have shattered or destroyed. James was sentenced to life in prison with a non-parole period of 46 years, the longest ever imposed in Victoria, but it was a cold comfort for some of those most closely affected. Outside the court, Matthew C.'s widow, Melinda, gave a statement saying, quote, There is no excuse for murder. If you are a danger to society, you should never be allowed to roam freely. The sentence is not harsh enough. Our family hopes that no one will ever have to suffer a similar fate as those who lost their loved ones and will continue to struggle with survival. We are looking forward to the inquest to shed light on past mistakes and to enforce changes that are needed. In April 2019, preparations recommenced for the coronial inquest. The inquiry would examine the circumstances that led to James being released on bail, his actions in the lead-up to the massacre, previous police involvement with James, and the conduct of the police just prior to the attack. In August, the coroner made a further announcement. The inquest wasn't originally going to investigate the events in the CBD, but the victims' families wanted and deserved answers about decision-making by senior police. On the day of the attack, the scope of the inquiry would now be expanded to scrutinize the response of Victoria Police on January 20th, from the time James arrived in the Melbourne CBD until his arrest. A further 10 witnesses would now be giving evidence before the coroner to help determine whether police pursuit guidelines and policies were appropriately applied and how police activities were coordinated. Meanwhile, Thanks to a $10 million security upgrade, permanent steel bollards were being installed around numerous CBD locations, which had been deemed high risk due to easy vehicle access and high volumes of pedestrians. This included Burke Street Mall, where temporary bollards had been installed back in June 2017, and Flinders Street Station. By August 2019, 131 bollards, a PA system, fixed planter boxes, and security cameras had been installed along Burke Street. In October, Victoria Police announced an implementation of a new policy regarding hostile vehicles. While this did not allow for increased police powers, new guidelines clarified that police must intervene to protect the public where car attacks are involved. Interventions include ramming, using roadblocks, and if all else fails, shooting an offender. Other operational safety reforms addressed offender management, emergency management response, intelligence management, and new specialist response units. 
When the coronial inquiry recommenced in November 2019, it was decided at the request of the victim's families that James would be referred to throughout the proceedings only as the offender. The age reported that the barrister, acting for Victoria Police, told the inquest that any police officers providing evidence would likely require their own legal representation. The coroner heard evidence from witnesses involved in James's bail hearing conducted on January 14th, and in the events in the following six days, including a slew of police officers, the volunteer bail justice told the inquest that on January 14th, Victoria Police failed to inform him of any concerns about James's behavior or mental health prior to bail being granted. He also claimed police failed to provide him with a copy of James's extensive criminal record, stating he didn't ask for it because he wasn't of the view that he needed to. The bail justice was adamant that bail would not have been granted had he had such information to hand. He also claimed that police, quote, indicated that there was an understanding in terms of James being a police informant. In addition to James himself intimating that he had this role, for this reason, the bail justice believed that the police opposition to bail was, quote, not real. Police rejected this claim, telling the inquest that James suspected mental health and drug issues simply required officers to build a rapport with him to facilitate discussions. The officers who opposed bail on January 14th refuted the bail justice's claims, saying they provided the relevant information and documents at the time along with a strong argument for bail to be denied. However, one of the officers did acknowledge that in the course of completing the paperwork, he made six errors on the remand application, which was given to the bail justice. The errors related to questions asking whether James was a danger to the public, had committed offenses on bail, and whether he'd admitted to committing crimes. The officer ticked boxes on the form, indicating no when he should have ticked yes. The police officer responsible told the inquest his errors were, quote, an oversight, but insisted he verbally communicated his concerns about James to the bail justice. ABC News reported that the inquest heard that on January 20th, even after James's location had been tracked down by police based on his mobile phone, there was still no formalized plan to arrest him by either local police or a specialist unit. This was evident by the refusal of CERT to assist local police following the initial phone pings, which placed James in St. Kilda. According to the Herald Sun, the inquest was told by a detective senior sergeant that requests by local police to triangulate the pings on James's phone were refused because they didn't meet requirements of relevant telecommunications legislation. The inquest heard that it wasn't uncommon for such requests to be denied. The inquest was told that the police helicopter was delayed in joining the pursuit due to fuel shortages. As we take a moment's pause in the middle of our exploration of the dark corners of humanity, let's explore a different kind of mystery, one that takes you back to the roaring 1920s with June's journey. In this hidden object game, you slip into the role of June Parker, tasked with unraveling the murder mystery of her sister. Each scene is meticulously designed, filled with hidden clues that lead you deeper into a storyline, riddled with danger, romance, and scandalous family secrets. 
I've personally ventured through the ornate parlors of New York to the charming streets of Paris within this game, each chapter peeling back layers of a complex narrative that's as engaging as it is visually stunning. Beyond just solving mysteries, June's journey invites you to escape into an era of opulence as you build and customize your very own estate island. It's the perfect blend of challenge and relaxation that I find incredibly refreshing, especially after delving into the often intense themes of our podcast. For those of you who thrive on solving puzzles and uncovering stories, June's Journey offers a chance to channel your inner detective. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Step into June's shoes and help her solve the ultimate mystery. Can you uncover the truth behind her sister's tragic demise? Now, let's dive back into our own mysterious journey here on Obscura. Stay tuned and keep your wits about you. Listener, think about how much you spent the last time you bought razors. Why do your razors cost so much more than men's just because they're pink? Because unfortunately, the pink tax is real. Razors are always so expensive and never do the job. When I shaved my face, razors always used to leave me with stubble. That's why you should use Billy, the best razor out there for women at half the price you'd expect. No pink tax, no visit to the drugstore, no irritation no matter what. Billy's crazy affordable starter kit comes with their award-winning razor, two precision five-blade refill cartridges, and a cult favorite magnetic holder. Billy blades have 360-degree charcoal shave soap built right in so they float like a cloud. Allure even called them the smoothest shave ever. They're an Allure Best of Beauty winner and on Nylon's beauty hit list for a reason. Yup, razors win awards, and Billy's has won a lot of them. You all need to try this. I couldn't believe how soft my fiancé's legs were. Don't suffer another second paying a pink tax for a bad shave. Go to mybilly.com obscura to get the best razor you will ever own while supporting this show. Billy is half the price of other razors, plus free shipping always. Just go to mybilly.com slash obscura, spelled B-I-L-L-I-E dot com slash obscura. That's mybilly.com slash obscura. The inquest also heard that a police informant who knew James tried to contact a detective directly by text message in the early hours of January 20th warning him about James' escalating behavior. But the detective, who went on to communicate with James by text message later that day, didn't see the messages until later in the morning. The detective told the inquest he, quote, couldn't say for sure whether this represented a lost opportunity to apprehend James. The detective told the inquest that based on his text message communications with James in the 90 minutes before the attack, he was of the view that James was originally prepared to surrender to police, but changed his mind at the last minute and stopped responding to the detective's further messages. In police helicopter vision shown to the detective, officers could be seen pursuing James in the Commodore for around 15 minutes in South Melbourne before he lost police as he headed towards the city. The detectives told the inquest he didn't attempt to stop James as he felt he wasn't driving dangerously at that stage. He also suspected that James would pull over or drive back to St. Kilda instead of heading to the city. Cert officers denied that James's girlfriend, Akir, 
had warned them about his intentions just after he pushed her out of the car on Bolt Bridge. According to The Age, a police superintendent who defended the actions of CERT told the inquest that only the special operations group had the capability to perform a tactical task, like stopping a moving vehicle. Special operations consist of heavily armed officers who respond to extremely high-risk incidents, such as hostage situations and terrorism. One CERT officer told the inquest that when the specialist team met up with the other officers in Yaraville, on the morning in question, he felt constrained by the vehicle intercept policy, saying, quote, I said words to the effect of, the only way we're going to stop him is to box him in or ram him, and I don't want to do that because I'll get a proverbial butt kicking for smashing the car up. If we had the specialist response, it would have been a well-planned operation potentially. Given we did not, I can't see how we would have done anything different. This sentiment was echoed by other officers who gave evidence at the inquest. They were reluctant to act assertively for fear of breaching Victoria Police policy, which would potentially leave them open to disciplinary action. As reported by The Age, the inquest heard that just weeks before the attack, a new, centralized police monitoring unit had been established. This allowed 24-hour access to police helicopter and CCTV footage, as well as specialist intelligence. However, technical problems prevented the technology from being available on January 20, 2017. ABC News reported that police officers told the inquest that they felt the pursuit policy in place at the time was, quote, frustrating. Had officers caught up to an offender in a vehicle, they were limited as to the sort of action they could take. The inquiry examined Victoria Police radio communications from the day in question, which revealed that police felt hampered by what they felt was an inability to appropriately respond in order to de-escalate the situation. This had a flow-on effect when it came to police vehicles being under-resourced. Having a limited range of options available to facilitate a mobile vehicle intercept... The stop sticks that you heard referenced in police radio communications in part one of our story are devices that police throw onto the road in order to immobilize a vehicle. Unfortunately for Victoria Police, at the time James was on the run, not every vehicle contained stop sticks. Officers also had no idea where he was going. This limited police to ramming or shooting the Commodore in order to intercept it. The inquest heard that officers' frustrations weren't limited simply to having poorly equipped vehicles, but the specifications of the vehicles themselves. Following the massacre, a group of CERT officers submitted their written concerns about limited capability of police vehicles in being able to pursue offenders and perform vehicle intercepts, describing them as, quote, grossly ill-equipped, slow, overweight, unsuitable, unstable, limited capacity, irrelevant, underperforming, poor handling, and unsafe to be used on the road as a tactical response. In February 2020, the inquest finally heard details of an internal review of the critical incident response team conducted by the assistant police commissioner in February 2017. ABC News reported that the chief commissioner of Victoria Police undertook legal action to keep the review suppressed, arguing that it wasn't in the public interest for the details to be released. 
and that some documents could compromise police operational methodology. But the coroner disagreed, and a win for the families of the victims and survivors who opposed the suppression. She ruled that details of the review should be made public. In part, the review was heavily critical of the way in which police failed to manage the rapidly unfolding situation, saying, quote, there was no active offender management plan put in place to monitor compliance with bail, despite the express intent of some members involved in the January 14th arrest. Active monitoring of bail may have provided police with an opportunity to identify significant breaches that would have warranted revocation. There was a lack of ownership, thought, or planning. Police were so focused on negotiating surrender that they failed to have awareness of a dynamically changing situation. When they did try to intercept, a pursuit eventuated but was almost immediately terminated. Despite this, they continued to adopt the same strategy but failed to consider what would happen if he failed to stop for them again or if their attempts to negotiate a surrender failed. They had no alternative plan or strategy. It was treated as a routine investigation when it should have been prioritized as an active ongoing investigation. Critical information was not passed on to other units or supervisors. There was no reason why CERT could not have been deployed to the area to assist in a search for the stolen vehicle. Police were not prepared to take a risk due to fear of repercussions and lack of confidence in their management to support them. Police would have been better prepared to re-engage if they had regrouped and rethought their strategies following the pursuit. What should have been a well-planned operation to resolve this evolving situation unwittingly turned into a poorly coordinated, unplanned response. I would like to, on behalf of Victoria Police, acknowledge the great harm and pain that this tragic incident has had on the families of the deceased and those that were injured. James's brother, Angelo, described to ABC's Australia Four Corners program the police response as, quote, systematic failure, and he wasn't the only one. The sentiment was also shared by the sergeant who had repeatedly requested the intervention of CERT in the early hours of January 20th to arrest James, but was refused. The sergeant left Victoria police following the massacre and rejected a citation awarded to him in April 2019 for his actions in protecting the public on January 20th. 2017, he sent the following response in refusing his award, conveying how strongly he felt about what unfolded on the day in question. To this day, I'm still troubled by the refusal from colleagues to assist in my desperate attempt to apprehend an unremorseful and unhinged murderer who was left free to roam the streets and wreak havoc. I am still haunted by the senseless and preventable deaths of six innocent people being someone who is taunted daily with the knowledge that Victoria Police failed catastrophically in its mission. It would be immoral for me to profit in any way from this tragedy. If you can arrange a transfer of lives where I could trade my life to bring any of the murdered victims back, I would gladly take that opportunity without hesitation. The former sergeant's actions in failing to coordinate an arrest plan had been heavily criticized by the earlier internal police review. However, the inquest heard that these criticisms were potentially based on errors regarding the way in which the former officer's actions were assessed. 
The former sergeant was relieved the inquest acknowledged this, telling the Age newspaper, quote, There is a toxic culture at Victoria Police, and when you speak up about the Brotherhood, you're targeted. This is what happened to me. All I ever wanted was to make sure the truth came out, so errors could be identified and fixed. So something like this never happens again. However, the assistant commissioner also sought to vindicate the actions of officers who were on the scene at Burke Street once James had made his way to the mall, writing, quote, Any commentary made in this report regarding failings identified does not mean that if other action had been taken, a different and better outcome would have been achieved. Police did not have prior knowledge that he had expressed intent to run everyone down in the city if the cops came to find him. They did not know of his murderous intent, and so from their experience, they would not have expected him to deliberately drive into a crowd of pedestrians along Burke Street. It is a big step for anyone to progress from offending and behavior such as that displayed. But families of the victims disagreed with the outcome of the review. Matthew C.'s widow, Melinda, told the inquest, quote, My young daughter asked me the other day, Why did Papa have to die? Apart from the actions of the offender, I will leave that question for Victoria Police to answer. Certain officers were more focused on their careers and safety rather than protecting the public. The whole plan hinged on one person negotiating with the offender. You cannot negotiate with a psychopath via text messages. The force touted a motto of safety first, which seems to only extend to their own employees. There are officers in Victoria Police who remain egotistic, not willing to admit to their mistakes, and are not willing to learn from this incident. You cannot affect change with that attitude. You should not carry the badge or wear the title. If you're not willing to risk yourselves for the community, if this is the best that Victoria Police can offer, then we are better off protecting ourselves. The bail system continues to fail us, and there will be another tragedy if no major changes are made. It's an irony that the police's new hostile driving policy was announced a month before the inquest began. It is not risk management if we only react to deaths. The police were never in control of the situation. The offender played them, and he won. We are forced to hear that nothing could have been done, and that the outcome may not have changed, even if other actions were taken. In other words... Our families had to be sacrificed on that day. There were some officers who offered their heartfelt apologies to the families. Although it does not bring my husband back, it helps to know that others were suffering with us. The offender's intelligence on the police was apparently more effective than the forces against him. He knew what unmarked cars looked like and that they would stop pursuing him the moment he drove recklessly. The offender must be the luckiest person on this planet. Matthew's father told the inquest, quote, I have the impression that on January 20th, the different police units were fragmented. There was no overall leader, and there was reluctance for teamwork among the various units. There was acknowledgement of victims' pain, agony, and sufferings, but no formal apology. The emotional and physical sufferings of the victims will linger forever. Over the past three years, it has been very difficult for me to understand, let alone accept that one single offender, 
possibly only armed with a knife and driving in a stolen car, was able to challenge a contingent of law enforcement officers, and won. Various issues have been identified, but there seems to be no accountability. The evidence presented in court last week highlighted that the tragic events of January 20th were unavoidable. I was led to believe that it had to happen and nothing could be done about it, as every officer acted in good faith. As I have not ventilated my grief and frustration, myself and my family would like to thank our legal team and a sincere thank you to everyone who helped Matthew, the first responders, paramedics, hospital staff, doctors, nurses, who tried so hard to save Matthew despite his unsurvivable injuries. Yusuke Kano's brother, Junpei, told the court, quote, I feel my younger brother was killed by this country, Australia. I see Australia as a country where you are murdered just because you just happen to be walking on the street, while the killer is guaranteed a warm bed and a cooked meal, as well as medical care to fulfill his life. My brother came here to study because he wanted to support many people as an occupational therapist. All he wanted to do was to help others, but I cannot picture myself helping others because my brother's kindness backfired on him in this instance. All the apologies are coming from those officers who were at the scene. However, on the other hand, I think those who are in controlling and supervisory roles have not acknowledged their own fault and failing to understand the skills of the officers working under their command and the situation those officers were in before making decisions. I think they are shifting the blame to the rank-and-file officers. I feel Australia is generous to criminals and their families, but cold-hearted to victims. Humans are animals that can die from sadness. The condition of our grandmother's dementia seems to have worsened since the incident. My father now drinks more than he used to. Every month, my mother goes to my brother's grave. Whether it is in the heat of summer or on a cold winter day, despite the travel taking more than three hours. And as for myself, I have become a cold-hearted person. Yusuke's father told the inquest, quote, The records of the statements which were provided to us contains many comments expressing self-justifications by those who are involved, or they can even be seen as blame-shifting. The statements appear to be limited to what actions each personnel have taken what their basis for those actions were. There are no words of remorse. Zachary Bryant's parents also commented, quote, Zachary was our second baby, and he was just perfect. He was the true definition of the word in every way. From the moment he was born, till we laid him down to rest, he was perfect. It gives us comfort to know he will always be safe in heaven. I hate knowing my son's death had to be the catalyst for change, but I hope that whatever outcomes follow meaningfully prevent incidents of this nature occurring again. We accept this is the result of one man, but the system is also complicit in our son's death. The coronial inquest concluded in June 2020. Five months later in November, the Victorian state coroner handed down her findings she did not accept the evidence of the bail justice's claims that at James's bail hearing on January 14, 2017, 
Police failed to provide the appropriate documents. However, she stopped short of commenting upon the correctness or otherwise of the bail justice's decision to release James on bail a week before he killed six people. The coroner also found that there was a lack of proactive policing in monitoring James's compliance with bail. The bail reporting process at St. Kilda Police Station was found to be flawed, with the coroner citing instances of James reporting between January 14th and January 20th that weren't accurately recorded and other occasions when James that weren't followed up. When it came to the refusal of requests to triangulate James's phone in the hours before the massacre, the coroner concluded that there appeared to be a lack of clarity in the respective roles and responsibilities of the responding supervisory units, which led to this confusion. The coroner did not consider it was reasonable for cert to have required confirmation that James was armed in order to intervene. When the situation demonstrated he likely still had the knife, and given what was known at the time. After all, the attack on Angelo had very nearly resulted in his death. The lack of clarity around roles and responsibilities, lack of ownership, communication, responsibility, and decisive leadership led to the ensuing confusion between police units on the night before the massacre. As the coroner put it, quote, the combined police response led to a perfect storm of ineffectiveness by the time police had pulled James over at Moray Street, the arrest plan was a haphazard one, evident in how easily he evaded apprehension. The plan urgently required reevaluation at that stage, but this didn't happen. The coroner formed the view that once James pulled away from Moray Street, the police response became, quote, uncoordinated, fragmented, and ineffective. This was apparent in their failure to interview Akir. At the earliest opportunity, after she was taken to the police station, the coroner accepted that while there was no evidence that the police were aware of James's intentions to run people over, it was a significant oversight to delay their interview with Akir, given she was a valuable witness. In terms of SSU involvement, the coroner was satisfied that it was possible that the unit may have become involved in the strategic plan to locate and covertly follow James. By the time James had again evaded police at the underpass, there had been a clear and significant escalation of risk that warranted a heightened level of police response. But when it came specifically to negotiating a surrender, the police had no plan. They'd also developed a tunnel vision in their belief that negotiating a surrender remained possible. Despite James's taunts to police and deteriorating state of mind, by the time it was apparent that police required an alternate strategy, it was too late. The coroner found that no realistic opportunity presented itself for police to stop James in the moving vehicle once he was in the CBD. Ultimately, though, the coroner was unable to conclude that had any one of the multiple police responses been different, that the catastrophe on Burke Street could have been avoided. The coroner's nine recommendations included that Victoria Police review its training, policies, and procedures and supervision of officers involved in bail remand proceedings. This would improve their skills and knowledge of numerous aspects of the bail and remand process, especially with respect to high-risk offenders. She also recommended the confusion around roles regarding operational command 
be eliminated in all areas, including criminal investigations, incident response, and planned operations. The need for changes to critical incident management to facilitate the effective use of police communications was also identified. The deaths of several of the victims have led to scholarships being established in their honor. The Victorian government now awards the Yusuke Kano Memorial Scholarship every year to a high-achieving Japanese student to allow them to study in Victoria. The family of Bavita Patel, in conjunction with her former employer, Deloitte, established an undergraduate scholarship at the Australian National University College of Business and Economics. Matthew C.'s family, in collaboration with the University of Western Australia, established a travel scholarship designed to assist and encourage high-achieving third-year architecture students to undertake study overseas. Two memorial plaques at Parliament Gardens Reserve, installed at the base of the fountain and on a park bench, were unveiled in a private ceremony attended by survivors and the victims' families. The inscriptions read, Quote, in memory of those whose lives were lost in Burke Street on January 20, 2017, and in recognition of others who were injured or affected by this tragedy, James Gargasulis will be eligible for parole in 2065. He will be 75 years old. Listener, if anything in today's episode has raised any issues for you, you can call the 24-hour National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233 in the United States or your relevant emergency number. But for now, I think that wraps things up. Thank you for listening, and keep the fire burning. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.